Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the tensions between the U.S. and China seem to be ramping up once again. Several months ago, it was trade and tariffs. Now it seems to be U.S. Uh, or Chinese companies listing in the U.S. and President Trump rhetoric coming out of uh, President as it relates to President Xi of China. Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer of Crane Shares, uh, joins us to discuss. So, Brendan, let's start with just some of the rhetoric. Um, it seems like President Trump is you know, suggesting that the country's leader, Xi Jinping, is behind, quote, a disinformation and propaganda attack on the United States and, and Europe. What do you think the strategy is of President Trump here as it relates to economic uh, issues with China? Well, I, I, th- I think we tend to see U.S. political rhetoric rise when equity, U.S. equity markets are at high levels. Uh, that that that. We've we've recovered from from the lows, and so we see this ratcheting up in in the rhetoric. And you know the market is doing what it usually does following a ratcheting up of rhetoric. It falls. Um, you know we'll probably have Larry Kudlow wheeled out to try to calm <laughs> markets. Uh, you know we've kind of seen this before. Um, so you know I, I think you know there is a lot of bark, uh, but the end reality is. Uh, there won't be probably a lot of bite. Very simply, China is the third largest destination for U.S. exports. So is this tied to trade, continuing trade negotiations, discussions, tariffs? Is this, you think the rhetoric is all tied into keeping a certain level of pressure on China from the U.S. perspective? I mean, I mean, <laughs> maybe this is the art of the deal. Um, <laughs> Uh, but maybe this is, you know, a deflection distraction uh, yeah. strategy. Um, you know, um, you know, this this terrible pandemic. I, I think most people would would give any leader a pass on what's happened. You know, we haven't had a pandemic here in a hundred years. But there's going to be more pointing the finger as opposed to looking in the mirror. Um, you know, I would have hoped a 9-11 commission type committee would be formed to kind of you know, prepare for the next time. But, but we're, we're, in, we're in the blame game. We're not in the accountability game. Exactly. Um, so what do you make of the Senate you know, approving legislation Wednesday that could lead the Chinese companies such as you know, Alibaba, big companies like that being barred from listing on U.S. stock exchanges? Well, I think the, the senators themselves are probably surprised that this thing passed. It was put up for unanimous uh, consent. Uh, no one objected, so it passed. And, you know, U.S. investors hold a trillion dollars yeah. worth of U.S. listed Chinese companies. This is not punishing China in any form or fashion. Uh, U.S. investors are the ones that hold these stocks. The, the reality is, you know, companies like Badu are not going to delist. The SEC is not going to delist these companies. You know, you know this it will go to the House next week. It's, it's going to pass. Trump will probably uh, uh, sign this. Uh, then reality, it will take another year for the actual details to be sorted out. And, and, you know, I think there's going to be a tremendous effort from the U.S. financial industry to rewrite this. No one wants to see U.S. investors holding uh, stocks that get delisted. Uh, so I, I think this is, again, part of there's a huge amount of, of bark 
there's there's not going to be uh, I don't think any bite to this. So given, you know, again, more bark than bite here, what what are your overall views about investing in China these days? It appears that they're getting back uh, to work here. Um, are you seeing some meaningful progress such that it would, uh, you know, alter kind of your outlook perhaps? Well, I, I think, you know, one, you know, these, these uh, U.S. listed Chinese companies, uh, they're, they're going to relist in, in Hong Kong anyway. You know, over the last two years during this trade war, the fundamentals of, of these companies, I mean, I mean I've, I've done nothing but improve. But, but the stocks trade based on every trade tweet. They have nothing to do with the trade war. <laughs> so they're going to go back to a market where they don't have to explain themselves. They're going to get valued at a higher level. They have the potential for index inclusions like the Hang Sang Index. There's the potential for southbound connect flows. So mainland investors can buy them, and they're going to bid them up. So, so the companies are going to relist. You know, you know that's, that's ultimately, it sounds crazy, but th- that is a very good thing for the investors in the U.S. shares because the stocks are fungible. Yeah, interesting. Real quickly, 30 seconds, Brendan. Do you think this rhetoric that we've talked about uh, today is just going to you know, maybe give the next Chinese company pause about listing on the U.S.? We've had some great success stories with Alibaba and, and others, but do you think this is going to put a little bit of a pause on that? Well, I, I, I would think so. You know, I think Hong Kong, uh, the mainland exchanges are, um, you know, as, as, as evidence, Hong Kong Stock Exchange went up uh, almost 2% today. I'm surprised it didn't go up more. You know, so, so exchanges do compete with themselves. And that's why there's a whole fin- U.S. financial system the ecosystem is going to push back against this yep. in a big, big way. They don't want to see the, the, uh, basically the, the, the money train turned off. Yeah, exactly. Brendan Ahern, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective as it relates to China and the investment uh, environment as it, uh, surrounding China. Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officers from uh, Crane Shares based uh, here in New York City, uh, talking about some of those companies like Baidu, uh, like uh, Alibaba. They've just been such successful IPOs and successful stocks on the U.S. exchanges. Uh, a lot of U.S. investors uh, in those stories. They've been excellent growth stories, uh, really predicated upon, you think about an Alibaba, predicated upon the growth of the middle markets in China as more and more of the Chinese economy uh, you know, moves from uh, lower end of the economic cycle to kind of more the middle market. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as we all make our way through this pandemic, one of the issues that we've discussed over the last several weeks is how will consumer behavior change on the other side of this as it relates to things like travel? Will we get on planes? Will we get on cruise ships? Uh, Retail sales? Will people just, uh, will they go into stores again or just kind of see an acceleration of online shopping? That's why I'm so happy and excited to have our next guest, Donnie Dorling. He's a professor of geography at Oxford, uh, University of Oxford in England. Uh, He's also the author of Slowdown, The End of the Great Acceleration. Get a sense of kind of how he thinks things are going to play here. Uh, Donnie, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, you joining us. I wonder if you have a sense of maybe how consumer behavior is going to change on the other side of this pandemic as we, you know, at some point get out of the lockdown and get back to some type of normal life. What are the things you're looking at? Uh, well, I can tell you my guesses. Of course, they're only guesses. Uh, I spent six years looking at the rate of change in, in loads of forms of behavior. Um, so 
whether something was slowing down or whether it was speeding up. And the shock of spending this, this six years doing this is I found that most things, even though they're still rising, people are buying more of things. The rise isn't as big as it was in the past. I finished this program in the very first week of January. I suddenly stopped changing it. So the book is not about the pandemic. The book is about what was already happening before the pandemic. And the suggestion was that our wages were not rising as fast as they had been. Our ability to spend wasn't rising. Uh, our borrowing, although it's still rising, the increase was slowing down. So the student debt in, in America uh, was growing, but not growing as quickly as it had done before. And the importance of saying all of this for the pandemic is this time it was different. This time the pandemic hit at a point of slowdown. The great con- contrast are the pandemics of the past. Uh, 1918, 1951, 57, and 68. And I, I have some of those in the book. Uh, in the past, when we had an enormous pandemic, much, much bigger than this one, the 1918, 1919 flu pandemic, world GDP dropped by 14%. But the year later, it rose by 16%. And it was as if it had never happened. Those later pandemics, you've probably never heard of, but they all had a higher mortality rate than this. And again, no effect on the economy. So the, so the received wisdom is pandemics don't matter. But I'm saying this time is different. Why is this time different um, if you talk about some of the mortality rates and infection rates? It's different because of the way we, we reacted to it. Uh, we didn't shut down uh, right. in the past. We have, of course, far fewer people um, and far fewer elderly people. But also we didn't have 24-hour news. We didn't have surveillance. We didn't yeah. know that the pandemics were coming. Um, and all, but more importantly than that, more importantly than that, our economies were so buoyant in the past, the kind of force behind them growing was so big that propelling forward, the markets were getting bigger, more people were being born, there were going to be more consumers, that a pandemic could be a blip. Whereas now, and like I say, I, I put this book to bed before this thing hit, and now so much was so shaky. We were talking trade wars with China, you know, we were, we were talking China and here having 6% growth in December, and that being a terrible thing for China and so on. Things are so shaky that it doesn't take very much uh, to suddenly uncover, oh, you have a huge debt crisis. Oh, so many of your firms have no capital. No, they can't just stop working for three or four months. They have no reserves. Uh, so the pandemic has revealed how shaky our situation uh, was and how much we were and you can't right. increase that. So, Professor, I mean, so I guess where we are right now in terms of the discussion as it relates to the pandemic and is kind of, and I think it probably goes to your book a little bit in terms of, you know, the acceleration is how do we reopen economies across the world? How do you balance the healthcare aspects versus the economic aspects? How do you kind of think that discussion should be framed? Um. Well, we're probably going to have less in future. That's one way of framing it. But the way I would frame the balancing is a mechanism called lives versus lives. So you look at how many lives are put at extra risk by unlocking versus how many lives are put at extra risk by not unlocking. In the UK, the most obvious case is we know that people have not been checked for cancers uh, because of the pandemic. So we know people will be getting cancer now and it will not be being treated, and we can estimate how many will die. So as the pandemic here falls, and we're lucky we're a few weeks ahead of you, as the number of cases fall, there comes a point 
when unlocking will actually save lives. And I think that is a, 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 a way of, of doing it. But longer term, we're not going to come out of this doing things exactly as we've done before. Some things we realise or should realise are more valuable to us than we realised before. Uh, what we really care about is a, a food supply system that actually works. Um, healthcare obviously matters more than we probably valued it before. And other things, flying on holidays you may not enjoy, really we should do much less of that in future. So what are just some things as we think about, you know, on the other side of this pandemic, what do you think, what might speed up while other things slow down a little bit in in, in our daily lives? You know, will our working more from home, all those types of things, work, leisure, balance. How do you think those things are going to play out? Yeah, you, so all the things that I measure, almost all of them, apart from carbon pollution and temperature and so on, were slowing down. But it isn't that we're sort of heading towards the end of history where nothing changes very much. Things that we don't measure will be speeding up, things that we'll measure in future. Our social relations, how, how liberal we are over how we tolerate other people. That, that, I suspect, is likely to rise. If you look at the social attitudes of young people versus older people, you can see a big difference. And I think we should expect that to increase in the future. Uh, hopefully, finally, what we were promised for decades and decades, working fewer hours, that's a change in values. We, you, know, you have to actually say it is precious to be allowed to only have to work for 40 hours a week, say or 35, which is the norm in some European countries. It is, you know, what that is worth to you, having that amount of free time and you do not have to work. Uh, and that would be a cultural change. And it's cultural changes like that where I expect to see a, a speeding up of people being different to their parents who just said, you must work as hard as you can, work's necessary. Those kind of attitudes, I suspect, will disappear and be seen as more obsolete in future. Uh, one game you can play with yourself is you can think, what things did your parents say that now you couldn't right. in polite company? And then what, of course, do me and you say to each other that we think is perfectly acceptable, but our grandchildren will say, you won't believe what, <laughs> what, what they said. Uh, and that's where the speed up will be. Right. Like, I think it's going to be... Uh... We think is acceptable. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Donnie, appreciate it. Donnie Dorling, professor of geography at the University of Oxford. Really fascinating. He's the author of a book, Slow Down, The End of the Great Acceleration, arguing that life had actually started to slow down across a number of metrics even before this pandemic. How will this pandemic affect lots of our lives going forward? This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. You know, when the Fed looked for bond buying help in this pandemic crisis, it turned to BlackRock, the giant money manager. Some folks think that Blackmark, BlackRock's role in the economy might be a little bit too big as it relates to its its efforts with the government. In fact, William Burt Thistle, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law who studies the fund industry, said, it's impossible to think of BlackRock without thinking of them as the fourth branch of government. To get a sense of kind of how worried we should be, we welcome Annie Massa, investing reporter for Bloomberg News, as well as Eric Balchunas. He's a senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Annie, I just want to start with you as we think about that. I mean, when you think BlackRock is so huge, they're doing a lot of business with the government. Is there reason to be concerned? 
So BlackRock is indeed the world's biggest asset manager, and it's a huge uh, kind of force of nature in Washington, D.C. And so when the Federal Reserve launched some of its unprecedented uh, plans to kind of shore up the bond market, um, you know, for three of its uh, separate plans, it went to BlackRock. And so BlackRock is managing um, its efforts to buy uh, debt directly from companies, secondary market, you know, debt on the secondary market, and then also um, mortgage, commercial mortgage-backed securities. Um, so, I mean, it's really taken an expansive role in the Fed's cleanup from this crisis, and that's what's had um, certain individuals looking at it and wondering if, um, you know, that relationship is okay or whether we should be worried. So, Eric, I know you spend a lot of time looking at uh, BlackRock. You cover the ETF space, and they are obviously a dominant, dominant player in the ETF space. What's your sense of kind of their role in the marketplace based on your experience? So I think it makes sense to ask questions about this. It's definitely, um, you know, I, I get it. Uh, the the Some of it's overblown, though. I think the ETF buying is a little overblown. The amount of money they're going to use to buy BlackRock ETFs isn't that much, A, and B, they're going to not mess with the market share. So they're going to buy Vanguard and State Street too. That way they don't pick winners in the ETF market. So they're taking great care to make sure that there's a lot of safeguards in place so that uh, they're not getting extra aid uh, from the government. That said, um, you know, it is pretty, it's unprecedented. I think this shows the rise of the buy side. Uh, Vanguard and BlackRock are the big fish now on Wall Street. Um, and this really, you know, shows that that happening. The big question people have to ask is, what should the Fed have done? Should it have let the bond market remain in what I call illiquidity hell? On March 23rd, we were seeing outflows from mutual funds that were just scary. I mean, yeah. regular investors were going to have funds probably halt redemptions. And so there's the bigger question is, should the Fed have even stepped in? If they did step in, wouldn't they want to work with somebody who knows the bond market better than anybody? So those are some questions that you had to pull the thread all the way to should any should should the Fed have helped the market at all? Exactly. So, Annie, what do you is your sense that the uh, the Fed's uh, buying in the marketplace is effective? Are they doing it well? Is it disruptive? How would you characterize kind of the Fed's efforts in trying to ensure liquidity in the marketplace by going in and actually uh, buying securities and ETFs? Well, it's important to remember that we're only in the very beginning phases of this. Last week, um, you know, the first phases of BlackRock's um, kind of role here got underway as it started buying ETFs, but um, the the additional pieces of this program are uh, yet to come. But it's it's definitely clear that just the fact that the Fed announced these bond buying facilities has calms the market down and just the knowledge that the Fed will be there to buy corporate debt has helped calm investors down. So there's definitely a signaling aspect that has that has helped the market, um, you know, beyond even getting the efforts underway. The old don't fight the Fed uh, is alive and well, as always. Eric, has there been some gamemanship in the ETF market? I mean, when the Fed makes this announcement about coming into the market, did did you sense when you're looking at volume or price that you know some members, some traders in the market said, "I'm going to go buy some of the you know investment grade ETFs or maybe even some of the high yield ETFs to kind of front run uh, the Fed?" Absolutely. Um, you know, you look at LQD, HYG, 
they're leading the flows since March 23rd, which I call Kitchen Sink Day, which is when the Fed <laughs> stepped in. All, and Annie's right. All they had to do is say they're going to be there. And that was enough uh, for the market, I think, to start acting like it used to. Um, you know, it, it's almost as if they reverse time because it looks a lot like it did at the beginning of the year. Um, if you look at LQD, HYG, and then they're probably going to buy VSTIT, which is a Vanguard, BCSH, which is a short-term intermediate, and then also JNK. Those five, I think, are what we're looking for. But they're not going to buy a lot. We're, we call it nibbling, and so we can't really see in the data much going on. We saw a little bump in volume one day in LQD. We thought, oh, that could be the Fed. But this is like trying to find footprints in the forest. It's very difficult <laughs> to know who's who, um, but especially with the amount of money. I think it was like $300 million they bought that would be 1% of the total flows that uh, those bond ETFs took in since March 23rd. So they are a tiny player. Their word to me is more impactful. I think they just decided to do this to buy them so that people knew it well, they wasn't just talk, that they right. were going to do it, but they didn't actually need to do it, it doesn't seem like. so. But they are definitely there uh, and looking to act on this uh, to make the market uh, feel com more confident. So, Annie, given that the, you know the Fed is, as Eric was saying, is kind of sending a signal there. I mean, is do you expect the Fed to be any more or less aggressive, or just kind of status quo here, knowing that I guess, for lack of a better word, they're a backstop here? Yeah, I think that that's definitely the right word to use. They're a backstop for these markets, and I think that we have to wait and see a bit how much longer these lockdowns continue on and how much additional pain companies feel as a result of them um, to really see the full scope of what will be needed in the Fed's bond buying program here. Annie, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Annie Massa, she's an investing reporter for Bloomberg News, as well as Eric Balchunas, senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Love getting their thoughts on BlackRock. You know, it's such a giant, giant firm, you know, and uh, I like how they were, Annie and Eric were, you know, suggesting that these are the new giants of Wall Street. When you think about Vanguard and, uh, uh, you know, BlackRock, the uh, asset allocators, the ETF funds, the, uh, you know, the passive investors are really, really uh, taking a tremendous amount of liquidity in the market, huge positions. And so when the federal government comes in to say, hey, we need to step in in terms of the Fed, in terms of step in and supporting this market with some liquidity in terms of buying securities in the marketplace, who do they turn to? Not Goldman Sachs, not Morgan Stanley, uh, but BlackRock. So Larry Fink and BlackRock really, really have established just extraordinary uh, position uh, in the marketplace. Uh, so we'll have to see how that plays out over time. But clearly, uh, investors are paying close attention to how uh, the markets react. Uh, we will keep on top of that for certain. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as the economic impacts from COVID-19 started to mount uh, in March, what we saw from the U.S. Federal Reserve was very quick response, very decisive response in terms of really trying to manage liquidity in the markets. And I think by by and large, the Fed has received uh, very positive marks for uh, its movement there. To get a sense of kind of where we go from here and how we think about the COVID-19 and the impact on the economy and investing, we're really fortunate to have Jeff uh, Flager, chairman and CEO of Mackay Shields. Mackay Shields has over $120 billion in equity and fixed income assets under management based in New York City. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us here. So it's interesting here, the Fed's policy response to COVID-19, I think generally is receiving some pretty good marks. How do you view what the Fed has done to date? 
I think we'd echo uh, you know, many of the responses thus, uh, thus far. We think that the decisiveness that the Fed and Treasury have both acted, uh, acted in has been applauded well by the, uh, by the market. I mean, you just sort of think back to that mid-March, latter part of, uh, part of March before that stimulus bill got up and, uh, up and running, and markets were very much in disarray. Yet we look at the investment-grade credit market and even the high-yield market, and these markets are not only functioning, but in many instances, they're actually flourishing as well. And the issuance has been, uh, has been tremendous. It's been a good response. So, you know, one of the concerns, Jeff, coming into the marketplace as we see about this, uh, you know, retracement we've had, this partial retracement of the declines from the peak to trough that we've enjoyed over the last, let's call it five, six weeks in the markets, the rebound, if, if you will, is that it's perhaps a little bit too far ahead of where the economics are and that, boy, that, you know, you see a jobless claim number like today, you see some ec- economic data points that we're likely to see for the next, you know, quarter or two, perhaps the market's too far ahead of itself. How do you come out on that? Uh, argument. Well, there's no question markets have run dramatically, and um, you know, the uh, support that the Fed has uh, has brought, we would argue, is definitely uh, a critical part of the uh, part of the equation. Um, I wouldn't call it a, uh, a pure backstop, but I think market participants are viewing um, you know, much of the uh, much of the programs that are now starting to get up and running as, in essence, uh, a backstop. The Fed has been pretty clear, Paul. The Fed's been clear. Treasury's been clear that they're going to do what it takes to keep this thing uh, going. That doesn't mean we're not going to see uh, defaults, but what we are going to see is we're going to see functioning markets, and functioning markets is what market participants care an awful lot about. Jeff, how what's kind of been your view? We've had you know we had that big round of fiscal stimulus. Uh, several weeks ago, um, you know, what's your sense as how it is how effective that's been in terms of getting money into the hands of consumers as well as in uh, to support small and mid-sized businesses. Yeah, I think there's a lot more to be done in terms of the small and mid-sized uh, mid-sized businesses, and I also think that um, you know the help that the consumer has gotten has been uh, a help. Has it solved the problem? No. I mean, I think if you look towards the Fed's minutes. Just the uh, just the other day, they still see a significant amount of downside risk that uh, that's out there. And while we are anticipating a rebound in the second half of this uh, this year, we're going to be looking very closely at the uh, at the consumer and how does the consumer react and can the consumer continue to pay their uh, pay their bills? And I think you hit the nail on the head, Paul. You know, we've got 25 million people that are out of uh, uh, out of work. Okay, and those folks are going to uh, going to struggle. There's no question uh, question about it. So I think Chairman Powell uh, said it well within uh, within his remarks. We're going to need some more fiscal support as uh, as well. Monetary policy is doing its uh, its job, and I think the other critical point is that a lot of these programs that are now up and uh, up and running, while they may not be critical today. They're there for the next bout of, uh, of volatility, should it in fact come. All right, Jeff. So again, I you know the the Fed has done its part. We've had some uh, good fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington. There's another three trillion dollars uh, that the House uh, has passed, and that's focusing uh, again a little bit more on state and local municipalities. Doesn't seem to be much uh, Republican support for that. How critical do you think that next round of fiscal stimulus is to the market? 
Well, the state and local municipalities are definitely going to need uh, going to need an assist, and uh, I think policymakers are, you know, pretty well in uh, well in touch with that. You sort of also look at some of the power that uh, the Fed and the Treasury have uh, have gotten, and uh, arguably, if there was one criticism that they were uh, they were getting was were they utilizing all of the powers and all of the capacity that they that they now uh, now have. So I think we'll wait and wait and see, and we'll wait. Uh, wait and watch, but there's a lot that they uh, they can do. And do we need a three trillion dollar stimulus bill? I'm not uh, I'm not sure, but I'm I am sure that we're going to need more, and that more is going to need to be uh, targeted towards not only state and local municipalities, but it's also going to need to be targeted towards the uh, towards the consumer. Again, as we said, 25 million people are out of uh, yep. are out of work. They're going to need an assist. Hey, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts. Jeff Lager, he's a chairman and CEO of Mackay Shields, giving us his thoughts uh, on the markets and on fiscal stimulus and on the Fed. Again, the Fed generally getting some pretty good remarks, uh, I would uh, suggest, from the marketplace as it relates to their uh, efforts in terms of kind of trying to make sure there is enough liquidity uh, in the marketplaces, both in the short end and on a longer term basis. And now the question is, uh, what else uh, can Washington do in terms of fiscal stimulus? Again, if you listen to governors such as Governor Cuomo of New York, uh, there is a dire need for f- support uh, for state and local governments. We'll continue to cover that. This. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.